Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Well, who's been enjoying this, uh, this series so far in the book of Revelation? It has been intimidating tackling this book of Revelation. And uh, we, we just feel so strongly that, you know, the hour we're living in, it really, really demands a new encounter with Jesus. You know, when, when the nation hits crisis, like the crisis it's been experiencing this year, the church really, we figure out what works and what doesn't, Right? We, we, really, we realize what is wood, hay, and stubble or what is gold, silver, and precious stone when, when the fire hits this nation. We, we realize that uh, we need him more than anything. We love motivational speeches, but they don't give us him. We need Jesus right now in this hour more than anything. And so before we go in, I, I said last week that this book, it requires us to approach it with a heart of tenderness. And so can we take a moment and just set the Lord before us right now? Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Let's put our affections on the Lord. Let's stir up, stir up affections, stir up longing, and let's, let's lift our hands and let's begin out loud telling the Lord how much we love him. Jesus, we We exalt you this morning, Lord. We want to behold you and you alone. We are not approaching this word to understand the plan, but we want to see the man who is Jesus. We want to see the resurrected Christ before us. And so we we stir up longing this morning. We stir up aching this morning in our hearts. And we just break up the fallow ground and we say, Jesus, meet us this morning. We want you and we want you alone. We love you. We exalt you. We, we lean in, Lord. We understand that there was an hour in this nation when, when the great heroes like Catherine Coleman and Smith Wigglesworth walked the earth that they measured success in a church service not by the size of the attendance but by the size of glory that came in. So, Lord, we cry out, give us your glory this morning. Give us Jesus and Jesus alone. Can we take a 30 seconds and just cry out for more this morning? Jesus, we ask you, fill the hungry heart, fill the lethargic heart, fill the heart that is tired and weary and bring more fire on the heart that is burning. We love you. Let's just give him some praise for a moment. Well, this is part two of the letters from Jesus to the book of, in the book of Revelation. So Pastor David, he started this series out um, a few weeks ago, and he introduced us to the author of the book. The author is John the Beloved, who was Jesus' most beloved disciple, who leaned his, his, his head against the chest of Jesus before he was going to be to the cross. And it's interesting that Jesus chose the most intimate man when he was here on the earth in his first coming, to be the one in his second coming to release the revelation and to be to give the revelation of what would happen, what would take place in the end. He just reveals right here how, ne- ne- how much of a necessity it is for us to be near his heart. And so Pastor David did an amazing 
it's talking about John the poet. And then I started last week actually diving into the first three chapters where Jesus actually gives us this letter, this exhortation for these seven churches. And at the time it was written, this message was meant for individual churches, but Jesus wrote it in mind for what the global church would need in this hour we're living in right now. So although it meant something individually when it was written, it applies to us of, of, Jesus, what do you value for us in these last days? We need to adjust our value system to his. I mean, you know, he won't adjust to us. <laughs> we must adjust to him. There was a story I heard recently of, uh, I read in this book called Holy Fire. And there was this husband and wife. In their home, there was this dove that kept perching on their window. And it would just sit there all day. And when the husband and wife began arguing or getting mad at each other, the dove ended up flying away. And then when they stopped and reconciled, the dove came back. And they realized this. We must adjust to the dove. The dove will not adjust to us. (laughs) And so I feel like through this reading, we are understanding, Lord, what is the dove saying? What do we need to adjust in our lives? What do we need to, what do we need to fix? What inventory do we need to take in our lives to adjust to this end time value system that the Lord is calling us to? And so we're going to continue that today. So last week I gave you three, the first three churches. And I actually skipped all the way to the last church because I didn't know I'd be doing a part two. But here I am today. And so we're going to be finishing the, the last four churches that Jesus talks to. And those uh, four churches are the church of Pergamum or Pergamos, the church of Thyatira, the church of Sardis, and the church of Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, but the church of Philadelphia. And... Um, I don't know about you, but I love the book of Revelation. It, it is intimidating, but at the same time, we're not, we're not approaching it in this reading to figure it out. We're not here to figure out how the end works. We want to see Jesus through this book right here. And so if you're interested in more, more resources, I want to give you a few resources to go and, and check out on your own. Um, Mike Bickle, uh, he is the leader of International House of Prayer in Kansas City. I don't know of any other pastor or church who has dissected this book as much as Mike Bickle has. I just love his heart for the Lord. They, they have 24-7 prayer and worship going on in Kansas City. And so he has incredible resources on YouTube if you want to check it out. So he has one-hour teachings on each of the seven churches one hour just on each church, and I'm packing four churches in the 30 to 45 minutes. And so if you want more, I just want to give you that resource. Mike Bickle has incredible teaching, and I've, been, I've watched every video for the last seven days. So my brain was fried by the end of it, but it is beautiful. So um, that is an incredible resource. And um, let's just continue this morning to be students of his coming, to, to anchor our souls not in the hour we're living in, but to come up higher and say, Lord, what, what are you asking for us in the end? Let us live today with the end in mind. What, what do we need to, to do? And so we're going to anchor ourselves in the lion who's coming back. I mean, no, in Jesus' first entrance on the earth, he came as a meek lamb, but he is coming back a second time as a roaring lion coming back for a pure and spotless, beautiful bride. And so uh, 
before I dive into the churches, I want to do a little bit of a review for those of you who weren't here last week. And so the goal of this book of Revelation, Revelation means unveiling or revealing. It is not the revealing of the plan. It is not the revelation of the beast. It's not the revelation of the beast system or the antichrist. It is the revelation of the man who is Jesus. And that is what we are are studying today. We're students of the Lord. Lord, what do you value? You value thanksgiving and praise. Let's spend hours giving you that. What do you want? Let's, Let's give him that. And, um, you know, it is the Father's greatest pleasure to reveal and glorify his Son. And that's what he is doing. Every every book, the, the Word says that the Scriptures speak of him. Every single verse in the Scripture is unto the man who is Jesus. And so as we're reading this, we are beholding and seeing the unveiling of the resurrected Christ. And we're diving into this because the hour we're living in, demands it. (laughs) You can feel it in the air. You you see it. You don't have to be spiritual to see that we're living in an hour in this nation of urgency. And it, it, it demands a different kind of prayer. It demands a different kind of preaching. It's not just patty cake sermons anymore or patty cake prayers. This is like he's calling us to dig our heels in and to see him rightly. Urgency always changes priorities. And so we're going to look and see, Lord, where, where do we need to shift our priorities? What are you asking for? And so let's go ahead and go to slide one and put the map up if you have that graphic of the map. And so many of you are, are uh, visual learners. And so I just wanted to give you a visual of what, where these churches are positioned on a map. And so these churches are in what would be modern-day Turkey. And so you see here the island of Patmos. That is where John the Beloved is writing this. This is where he's getting this revelation from Jesus. And then we see these seven churches are all on one single road. And this is what I love about Jesus. He is so perfectly and intricately involved that he declared these messages in order of which they would be received by the churches. So he starts with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he actually reveals these churches, these messages, in order of which the messenger would go. He would leave Patmos, go to Ephesus, go to Smyrna, and so on and so forth, and send this message to each church. And I believe, you know, obviously Jesus deposited so much in the land of Turkey, and I believe Jesus will see a, a massive revival come out of Turkey in the last days. He, he deposited end time seed in that soil, and I just believe he, we will see a massive move of God come out of uh, that very nation of Turkey. And so, Laodicea, I, I, last week I did Ephesus, Smyrna, and then I jumped all the way to Laodicea, and the reason I did that is because many people see these seven churches as seven different ages of the body of Christ. It's not like a proven word of the Lord. I actually agree with that thought because it's really interesting. Ephesus begins as the the birthing of the church. It's the Acts church where there's a move of the spirit. This was the revival church. And then Smyrna comes, which is the persecuted church where the disciples experienced a lot of persecution. Many of them were martyred and then Pergamos would be the elevated church. That's when the Roman Empire embraced Christianity instead of stomping on Christianity. And we go all the way to Laodicea. 
And Laodicea is all about self-righteousness. It's all about let's, let's make our external world bigger than our internal love for Christ. And that's what I feel like we're seeing in, in the general American church. We have beautiful buildings, beautiful productions, and there's nothing wrong with that. But is the size of our external world, does it match the size of our internal fire and love for Jesus? Is the world we're having externally, is it an indication of the fire we have internally? And so that is the church in Laodicea. And uh, let's go ahead and go to slide number two. So the message to the seven churches. So this is what I believe five things this, these letters do for us here as the body of Christ. Number one, it reveals Jesus's value system for his end time church. How I many you know Jesus is not our manager? He is not our boss, although he is, but he is Lord. That means he can tell us what to do. He has lordship over our lives. He is not our homeboy. He is Lord. <laughs> Michael Cleanos, he, he, I listen to him a lot. He said, I remember back in the 90s, there were these shirts that says, Jesus is my homeboy. He's like, he's not your homeboy. He is Lord. <laughs> he is friend. He is lover. He is not sidekick. He is Lord. And so number two, it gives affirmations. Jesus will always give an affirmation of what this church is doing right. Some churches he does not give any affirmation to. We'll get into that. Number three, it gives correction and discipline. And number four, he gives a loving remedy or pathway for repentance. He would be a cruel father if he just told us what we were doing wrong and gave us no, no on-ramp to get back on track. So each correction, he always says, hey, here's a way to come back to my heart. If you do this, 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 you get me. So he always gives us a pathway back to him. And God is, he, he, it's almost like a hide-and-seek game, except God is really bad at playing hide-and-seek. He makes himself so available where you can't miss him. And so number five, it gives promise of reward to those who overcome. And so let's go to that next slide. These are, I, I showed this to you last week. If you want to take a picture of this, uh, I think we're going to make a resource page available online. But in chapters 1 through 3, there are 22 eternal rewards that Jesus lays out for us who overcome these certain, these certain obstacles that we face in our lives. And I believe these 22 rewards, they're not just like, they all don't just come with salvation. This is an addition to salvation. This is an addition to the, the circumstances we overcome today. He gives us rewards according to how we loved him in this life. And so if you just look at a few of these, how beautiful they are to eat with Jesus, to sit on his throne, to receive white garments. I love that one, to receive white garments. We're going to talk about that later. But how we clothe him on this side of eternity determines how he clothes us on, this side of e on the next side of eternity. The way I clothe him with my love privately here on earth he says, hey, I'm going to clothe you that way when you get to heaven. We will wear how we love him. He will dress with how we loved him on earth. Our internal fire will no longer be hidden in a secret. It will be on display for everyone to see. These are the 22 eternal rewards. And I love it. Jesus is incredibly generous with these rewards. It's like change an attitude and sit on his throne. It's like change an attitude and you get a million dollars. He is incredibly generous with his rewards. 
you know, have an attitude shift and be made a pillar in God's temple. It's like, what kind of generous father is this? He is so incredibly faithful, so incredibly generous. And these rewards are not about our superiority. It's not like, hey, I'm going to go to heaven and flaunt my, my robes. But uh, this is Jesus rewarding us by expressing how he feels about the way we loved him while we were on earth. He, he's incredibly generous. And you might say my, my passion for him is, is weak or my love for him is, is small. Small love is still real love. Just because your love for him is weak, it, it doesn't mean it's not real. He can still work with weak love. Weak love is still real love, and, and he can build a fire out of that. He can build a burning flame out of, out of weak love. And so we can go to slide number four now. And so this is the message to the seven churches. So Jesus Really, overall in this message, he gives three main corrections to these seven churches. The first one is spiritual passivity or apathy. It's that lethargic heart, that, that heart that has fallen asleep, that heart that maybe burned when you first got saved, but now the, the flame really has just died out. Number two, that's really this hyper-grace message where you turn a blind eye to immorality that's going on in the body of Christ. And number three is love for money or lust for money. And so how do we read this? How did it apply then and how does it apply now? What, what is incredibly tragic to me though, I said this last week, is two out of the seven churches, he gives no affirmation to I can't imagine doing life, doing ministry in a way that brings absolutely no affirmation to the Lord. And I don't even want to know how many churches are like that today. But on the flip side, another two out of the seven churches, he gives no correction to. Which shows us it is absolutely possible to live a life that is fully pleasing to Jesus. Where we need no rebuke, no correction. And um, this just reveals his heart. Let's go to slide number five. So the most important piece that, that I personally get from the book of Revelation is it, it reveals what he values. It reveals his, his value system for his end-time bride. And I want to compare it to what would generally be the consensus of a, a successful American church. What, what we would generally call a, a successful church in America. So... What we would call a successful church in America generally would be, number one, the size of attendance. We think big church, successful church, right? Number two, the size of giving. If, there's, if there was a big offering that week, then, oh, it was a good Sunday. If there was a low offering, that was a bad Sunday. And number three, what is the popularity, recognition, and size of that influence? And this is not just apply to churches. This can apply to our own personal lives. And we compare that with what Jesus is calling success, where he says, number one, I desire a burning heart more than I desire you having influence. I desire a heart that burns above all else. And number two, he wants oil and gold. What is that? It is formed through taking the, the struggles of life. Maybe you're facing betrayal. Maybe you're facing a sickness and bringing it through the fire, through prayer and worship, and he forms gold and oil through that that we will take to the throne room in heaven. One list we can't take to heaven, one list we can take to heaven. 
And number three is holiness. What is that? It's clean hands and a pure heart. It's not that this list is wrong. This list is not sinful. This list is not wicked. It's not wrong. However, when this list takes precedent over Jesus' list, then that invites the rebuke and correction of the Lord. And this, this is sobering to me. And as a church leader, as an individual of like, oh, Lord, I, I want what you want. I want to value what you value. You, you know, success, the measuring stick for success for Jesus is not numbers. It's a heart that burns. If, if success is determined by numbers, then the cross would have been a failure because there were only a few there at his feet as he hung there. Success was determined by numbers, then the birth of Jesus would have been a failure because there was only a few wise men. He hides himself to the hungry, his presence in the stable. And this is his value system. So let's go to slide number six. So I didn't talk about this uh, last week, so this is new. So in chapters one through three alone, what we're studying today. Jesus gives 30 different descriptions of himself. And I think these are beautiful. So there are 90 total descriptions in the entire book of Revelation. A lot of those are repeated. And there are 30 distinct descriptions of Jesus just in his message in seven churches. And if you feel dry in your life, if you feel like dry in your prayer life, this is amazing fuel for you. Anytime I'm cold or just feeling like, Lord, I didn't, I'm feeling asleep today in my heart. He says, talk to me about who I am. When you behold me, you know, it takes God to love God. We must see God in order to have fuel to love God. The more we see him and behold him, the more our heart will be filled to love him anymore. It takes Jesus to love Jesus. We love because what? He first loved us. And so just, just. Take a moment. I'm going to say these out loud and just feel how the room shifts. Jesus, you are Jesus. You are Christ. You are not only the Son of God, but you are Christ. You are the crucified one. You are the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. You are the one who loved us. You are coming with the clouds. You have the voice like a trumpet. You are not only Alpha, but you are Omega. You are the Almighty. You walk in the midst of the seven lampstands. You are the Son of Man. You have a garment that goes down to your feet. Your head and hair are beautiful like wool. Your eyes blaze like burning fire that burn up all the idols in my heart. Your feet are like brass. You have the sound of many waters. You hold the seven stars. You have a voice like a sharp two-edged sword. Your countenance is like the sun. You are the first and the last. You're the one who lives. You hold the keys of the kingdom. You are son of God. You have the seven spirits of God. You are holy. You are true. You are the amen. You are the beginning. Do it again. (laughs) Do you feel how the room just shifted? Something happened. Something happens when we say that. You could say the name Tanner all day. Nothing's going to (laughs) happen. But these, it brings heaven. Why? Because he is enthroned on the praises of his people. He lives when we say these words out loud. Talk to him about who he is, and you'll, you know, you may not feel it at first, but 
You do what you don't feel like doing enough times, you're going to feel like doing it enough times <laughs> the more you do it. It's so beautiful. So Jesus begins each, uh, each of his address to each church with a different description of himself. And I believe uh, there aren't only 30 descriptions of Jesus. I believe this is just what he gives us. I believe when we get to heaven there, he, you know, the descriptions of him just go on for eternity. I can just see us in heaven we're just gazing at the face of, of God, and then his face just turns one centimeter, and all of heaven gasps, and we say, oh, there's another side of him. Oh, isn't he beautiful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he wonderful? He moved just a centimeter, but I see another facet to his nature. He goes on for eternity. He is eternally good. He's eternally faithful. So he... he introduces himself to each church with a different description of himself. And, and he is doing this to emphasize that you need this aspect of me to overcome what you're currently facing right now. How the Lord introduces himself to each church reveals the very aspect of his nature that they need to behold, seek, and pray out in order to overcome the different challenges they're facing. I don't know if this happens to you, but, but for me... Um, before I go through a really difficult trial or a wilderness season, I, that season of wilderness is always preceded by a season of deep, deep encounter where the Lord is just feeding me, feeding me, feeding me. It's almost like the story of, of the prophet. I forget which one, but this angel he kept feeding him, feeding him, feeding him. And he's like, why do you keep feeding me? And he said, because you're about to go a long time without eating. You're going to need a full stomach for the path that you're about to go on. And many times the Lord will expose a specific nature to me and then send me to the wilderness to cement that nature not only into my head but into my nature to where maybe he shows, hey, I am faithful. This is the aspect of, of me that I'm showing you. I'm faithful. Oh, I'm faithful. I see you, Lord. I see you. And then I go over in the wilderness and what? My identity is attacked. My, my future is attacked. Every prophetic word over my life is attacked with lies. And I have to remember, we said remember, what he told me there and have it cemented down from my head down to my heart by declaring, oh, Lord, you are faithful. You have called me to this, 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 and that. I need what he showed me here, this part of himself, when I go into the wilderness. We see the same thing with Jesus. What happened with his encounter? The sky split the dove descended and said, this is my beloved son. You are the son of God. What happened? He was saying, this is your identity. What was the very thing that the enemy attacked? It was his identity. <laughs> if you are the son of God, do this. If you are, do that. Some of you are going through a difficult season. You think you're doing something wrong. Really, the word over your life attracts obstacles. I want to suggest you're not doing anything wrong. Many times the Lord will frustrate you out of the boat. And uh, you need what he showed you here to submit itself into your identity. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide. This, these are the, the seven churches. So the first one we're going to talk about today is the church of Pergamum or Pergamos. You can say it both ways. And this is really called in, in our language the hyper grace church. Uh, they, they really turned a blind eye to sin. And Jesus is confronting them and, and, and saying, hey, how your lifestyle actually matters. Like, like, yes, my grace is sufficient, but my grace empowers you to live holy. Like holiness still means holiness. <laughs> holiness means clean hands and a pure heart. 
And uh, let's go ahead and just jump in and read this. So let's start reading Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus said this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? To the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I'm going to explain that in a minute. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, to commit sexual immorality. So drop down to verse 16. He says, therefore, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who received it. So Pergamum, we can go back to, uh, to the slide. Pergamum means married or elevated. And it really makes sense if you think about that each church was a different era of the body of Christ. Because this is the era where... The Roman Empire, instead of killing people for Christianity, the Emperor Constantine actually got converted, and it elevated the church. And this was huge. This would be like, think of the most terrible nation where Christianity is persecuted, like North Korea. This would be like if the leader, Kim Jong-un, got converted and embraced Christianity. This, this is massive. This was absolutely incredible. And by the way, um, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea... It was once called the Jerusalem of the East. And Billy Graham's wife actually went to school there when she was growing up. There was a mighty move of God there. So, Lord, we just declare right now that you would send fire, restore the Jerusalem of the East in Jesus' name. I just wanted to throw that out there. So let's go back to the scripture. So he says, I know where you live, where Satan sits enthroned. That is really harsh, but it's not a rebuke. He's actually giving them an affirmation. I'm going to read this right here. So the city of Pergamum, it had an elevated cliff overlooking the city. And this cliff was known as a throne for the Greek god Zeus. For this reason, it was described as a place of Satan's throne. So this city had this massive cliff. And on top of that cliff, it was like a throne for idol worship. That was where they worshiped the Greek gods. And underneath that cliff sat the church. So he's saying, hey... You are doing a great job. You are having a church right underneath Satan's throne, and you have not forsaken your faith. He is actually applauding them um, right now. And later, he talks about down here, you did not deny your faith in me, even though you were having church underneath Satan's throne. I would not want to have a church underneath Satan's throne. (laughs) He says, you didn't leave me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed. How many of you remember last week, I talked about the church of Smyrna and their their pastor, uh, what was his name? I forgot his name. Polycarp, who uh, was tortured and burned alive. So the same thing really happened to the church of Pergamum. Their pastor's name was Antipas. And Antipas was a disciple of John who is writing this book. And he was the pastor of this church who ended up being killed for refusing to make a sacrifice to these Greek gods that, lived, that, that they worshipped on the cliff. It says this. He was dragged to the temple of the Greek gods and placed inside a bronze bull-like altar and was roasted alive until he died. 
And Jesus is saying, he's praising them, saying, the greater the persecution, the greater the opportunity to deny your faith. And you haven't yet. You've, you've clung to me. You know, me as a, as a youth pastor, I, I remember when I first became the youth pastor, I felt like an invitation in my head to wear Saul's armor, and so to speak, and like be that typical, like entertaining, loud youth pastor, the crazy youth pastor. I'm not, if you're a crazy youth pastor, go for it. But I felt this almost invitation to do that. And, and I was just like, Lord, that's not me. Like, that, that, that isn't me. I just want to love you. I just want to show teenagers how to encounter you and how to just get blasted by heaven. And he said, you are not there for their entertainment. You are there for them to experience me. I'm like, Lord, what if they get bored? He said, you're not there for their entertainment. Who cares if they get bored? You're there to experience me. They would much rather have an encounter than a slice of pizza. He <laughs> said, give them me. Show them me. And he's saying, you need to anchor yourself in me. So my goal as a, as a pastor of teenagers is, is, hey, you need an encounter with the Lord that is greater than what culture is going to offer you when you go to college. Because I really compare it to what, what John is saying is like the universities in the world, it's, it's like that, that cliff of Satan's throne. And the goal is not to... Not, not to Give them an ex- a, a history lesson, but it's to give them an encounter that is more real to them than where they're going. When, when they move off, they need an encounter with Jesus that is more real to them than what college, than what the culture has to offer. And Jesus is saying, fight this battle. Get rooted in me, and you'll have an eternal reward. So he says this. He continues to say, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak. So I want to explain this to you. So I'm going to go 1,500 years way back in the time of Israel when they were, they were leaving Egypt. How many of you are familiar with the Exodus, Moses uh, leading the children of Israel out? So Jesus is actually referencing here something that happened 1,500 years ago. And what had happened is, uh, you know, the Israelites were leaving Egypt. How many of you know the seven plagues happened? The water turned to blood. There were frogs everywhere. All these plagues happened. And the king named Balak, he was the king of what would be modern-day Jordan, which is a neighboring nation to Israel. So he heard about all these things that, that had happened in Egypt. And he heard that the Israelites were coming. <laughs> How many of you know if you had a next-door neighbor that was moving in to the house next to you where their god brought frogs down, you would have c- some concerns too, right? <laughs> so naturally, he began to get nervous. I see them coming. I've heard the stories. And so Balak, this king, he summoned this prophet named Balaam. So Balak is the king. Balaam is a prophet. So he came to this prophet named Balaam. He said, hey, I see them coming. I need you to curse them. (laughs) I'm going to pay you a bunch of money so you can curse God's people. This is a prophet being summoned, a child of God being summoned to curse God's people. I don't know about you, but in my time in ministry, I have experienced much more hostility from believers than unbelievers. (laughs) And so what happens is Balaam gets up. He stands up and he's ready to curse Israel. He stands up and here comes the curse. He opens his mouth, but the power of God comes on him. And instead of cursing them, he word vomits blessing on them. (laughs) 
He says, I curve, I bless you. And the king's like, what just happened? I'm paying you millions of dollars for this. He tries it again. I bless you. Again, I cur, I bless you. What was happening? The power of God was, was hitting him. How many of you know we, we are all children of God? A child of God is cursing a group of children of God. Me and Pastor John, we are both children of God. If I, as a child of God, decide to partner with the accuser, decide to partner with the voice of the enemy and begin accusing and persecuting John, even though I'm a child, God has an obligation as a father to stand up and defend one child against the other. Why? One partnered with darkness, one partnered with light. And so what eventually happened is they realized this plan wasn't working. (laughs) And so they went to plan B. And so Balak said, here's what we're going to do. You're going, we're going to get all our most beautiful women. We're going to get all, all the drinks. We're going to get all of our party gear. And we're going to throw them a welcome home party. And we are going to slowly but surely seduce their hearts from loving the Lord to loving all these other things. And it worked. Jesus is referencing this. He said, you know, the enemy does not come blatantly sometimes. But he comes subtly to deceive believers. Years, it takes years and years of compromise to realize, wow, I'm collapsed right now. You know, my wife Emily loves clothes. <laughs> she loves clothes. She looks like a million bucks all the time. And we, we, she shops on a budget. She does a great job. And so what we have to do a lot of times is we have to take inventory of our closet we have to make sure we are removing clothes as we are adding them. And so we, we tend to do this. We tend to get trash bags and, and give clothes away. There was a period of time a couple years ago where we really stopped taking inventory. And we did a little shopping trip here. More clothes. We did a little shopping trip here. More clothes. And I looked at the closet and the rack is tilting. <laughs> All the weight, you know. And I just really brush it off. And one night, it was a Saturday night before church, she was in the shower, I remember this, and all I hear in the closet is boom, 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 boom. I look, and the whole rack of her clothes is toppled onto the ground. She comes out of the shower, what happened? We didn't take inventory of our clothes. (laughs) Uh, What I'm saying is, little by little, if we are not watchful with every detail of of our lives, if we are not taking watchful inventory of Maybe this, this show I'm watching, maybe it is really taking me away from the Lord. You might say, oh, oh I'm under grace. Grace is, is it's not about saying, no. grace is not legalism. I don't say, I'm not saying no to this show because of legalism. I'm saying no because of love. Because if this hinders my fire, then it is not worth it. And so little by little, if we do not take inventory, we leave collapsed. And Jesus is saying, hey... What happened 1,500 years ago, it's happening right now to you guys. It's right before you. He's saying to these church leaders, I'm holding you accountable because you are silent by holding, not holding them, them accountable. Past, this German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived during the time of, of uh, Hitler's rise, and he has this quote on cheap grace. As meek, nice, calm Jesus is telling them this. <laughs> 
He says this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of a man will go and sell all he has. It is the call of Jesus, which a disciple will drop all he has to follow. But Jesus gives us a remedy. He's saying, repent, or else I will come with the sword of my mouth. When Jesus is saying, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth towards you, he's not saying, I'm going to come in war against us. He's not saying, I'm going to war against you. He's saying, I am coming to war against everything that wars against your love and fire for me. Welcome to 2020 and 2021. Could it be that this it feels like, Lord, are you warring against me? No, I am warring and shaking everything you've put your hope and your trust in. I am coming with my word, with my mouth to shake and war against what is warring against your fire and your love for me. He's saying, you need my word to get free. If you're in this room or if you're watching or you're struggling with sin or this cycle of sin, you feel like you can't get out, Jesus is saying the remedy is my word. He's saying you need this part of me to overcome what you're facing now. You might say, what do, what do you mean? I just sit down and read the Bible and I'm going to get free? <laughs> Here's what I mean. In, in Ephesians, how many of you remember where Paul talks about this analogy of the Roman armor, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit he, he, he calls the Roman sword the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this sword that the Romans used was not just to fight darkness and fight the enemies, but they used it for after the battle. They would sit down and really take inventory of their, their armor and look and see where have the arrows penetrated my armor. And they would use that sword and dig out the arrows that may have gotten through their shield, that may have gotten through their helmet, it would sit down and just take inventory. When we approach the Bible, when I go through my day and maybe I had an accusation that went through my shield of faith. Maybe there was something I watched that I shouldn't have and maybe there was a conversation I had that I shouldn't have and I have this arrow of sin that pierced my armor. I sit down with the word and little by little, the sword is getting these arrows out. The sword of God is, the word of God is not primarily for us to fight darkness, although it is, it is to cut us, to heal us. This is the word. Ephesians 5.26 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain, without wrinkle, and without holy blameless. There's a washing that comes with the word. There's a difference between being washed and being cleansed. Wash is to, to clean something with water. To cleanse is to be completely free and rid of sin as if it had never happened. We need a combination of the washing of his word along with the cleansing of the blood of Jesus. Anytime that I have maybe you know, had a bad dream or been a part of a conversation that just kind of went into gossip. And how many of you get that, that dirty feeling in your soul? 
Maybe a conversation may have shifted into gossip or maybe there was just even a bad dream you had and you feel dirty. Here's what I do. I take the word. What is it? It's, It's a sword, but it is also water. And then I take the blood of Jesus. I take communion. I approach Jesus and I begin reading. The water begins washing me. I take the juice. I say, Jesus, I ask you to cleanse me. And I have this flow that is piercing heaven of the washing of water, the cleansing of blood. If you remember, when Jesus was hanging on a cross and they pierced his side with a Roman sword, what spilled out of his side? The washing of water and the cleansing of blood. The word is not only to pierce me, it's to pierce heaven open and to have this flow flowing down from us that both washes and cleanses us. He says, what is the reward? (laughs) To eat hidden manna. Jesus is hidden manna. Influence does not feed my soul. (laughs) Walking in my calling, although it is amazing and fulfilling, it cannot feed my soul. Him and him alone, his word is the only thing that feeds my soul. Let's go to slide number eight. So I'm going to just briefly touch on this uh, church right here because it is almost an exact replica of what we just talked about. So this is the church of Thyatira. It means continual sacrifice. The description Jesus gives is eyes of fire, feet like brass. And his affirmation is, hey, you're doing great, excelling in love. However, you tolerate Jezebel. Never name your daughter Jezebel. Amen. (laughs) What was happening? It was immorality. They were doing the same thing that the church of Pergamum was doing. The discipline is, I'll strike you down with a a moral, with plague. And the overcoming reward is authority over nations. And so, like I said, that is just a replica of what we talked about in Pergamum. So I'm just, I just briefly touched on that. So let's go ahead and go to slide number nine. Let's start reading in Revelation chapter three. This is the church of Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, the one who has the seven stars, the spirits of God and the seven is this. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works to be complete before me. Therefore, remember... I think that's just the theme of today. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Later, he gives the promises. But this is what we would call the popular church. The increase of their size and works of ministry did not match the increase of their size of the passionate love for the Lord. And the thing is, that did not bother them. They had a reputation for being successful. They were living off their past success. They were living off their past glory and thinking they were doing everything right. And I can't think of anything more tragic than this and living off of yesterday. I can't live off of yesterday's encounter. I need my daily bread. That's why when the Lord gave the Israelites manna, it turned to worms the next day because he wants us to be sustained by his presence daily. I would rather have nothing to say in my, and, and be current in my relationship with Jesus than have everything to say and be spiritually lethargic. And, you know, our, our fire for God, it, is not, it, it does not automatically grow the older we get. 
Actually, the opposite happens. If we are not intentionally setting the Lord before us, we automatically grow cold and, and colder and colder. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, what you started with, you're living in the reputation of yesterday. You need to burn again. He, he's talking to this, this deep place of spiritual passivity. And he, he's asking them to come up higher to this new level of success. Like I said before, influence will never feed our souls. Me walking in my calling right now, what I'm doing, I love it. But, but at the end of the day, it does not feed this deep place in my heart. Only his presence can do that. He has this deep place in all of our hearts that is reserved for him and only him. You getting every prayer you could have ever asked, it will not feed your soul. What will feed my soul is today. <laughs> Here. Have lunch. And I go set before him and I just begin loving him. Casting my crowns at his feet. Him and him alone feeds our soul. He is the hidden manna. He is the, the, the alpha and the omega. Ben Fitzgerald is an incredible evangelist. He says this. The enemies of our passion for God aren't simply evil things. It is often noble pursuits and opportunities that slowly but surely distract you away from his presence and his word. Above all else. Abide in him. I want to close with these last few things. If we could get keys up here. Let's just take a moment and set our affection on him. Jesus, we love you. This is his pathway for us back to fervency, to passion. Number one, he tells them, be watchful. Take inventory of your soul. This is coming before the Lord, and we're saying, Lord, search me and know me. See if there's anything in my heart. This is not introspection. Introspection will always lead you down a path of torment and anxiety. That is not the Lord. This is Holy Spirit examination of him lovingly coming in and saying, I want you to say no to this because you say yes to me. This is love. This is not legalism. This is not, this is, this is love. My yes to Emily was my no to every other woman because I love her. And he says this, be watchful. That's number one. Number two, he says, repent, respond to conviction. And he gives, in my head, three stages of conviction. And I'll give you these. The first stage of conviction is between God and me. Have you ever felt that, that, that whisper when you're sitting in service or worship and you feel that God pointing on an area of your life and saying, hey, let's do something about this. How many of you have experienced that, that, that feeling before? So the first area of, of conviction is between you and God. If, if I still do not change my ways, he'll move on to the second one I've learned. This is a conviction between me and a leader or me and a spouse or me and a family member. He'll send someone into my life to say, hey, this part of your life, I'm, I'm just, I want to know about this, you know. What's going on here? If I still don't change my ways, he will do a conviction by circumstance. And that's what we see in Ephesus. It's the removal of our lampstand. And God does not remove influence as a punishment. He removes it anytime we put so much of our hope and our love on influence. He says, I am going to lovingly remove this if it will take you back to me. He's more into burning heart than he is of influence and followers. That's amazing if he gives you that. But if that turns into my hope and my, 
my, my feeding place. And he says, I'm going to lovingly take this away so you can come back to me. We see this with Saul in the Bible. We see him get rebuked by, uh, by the prophet. He says, what are you doing? And he ended up justifying himself instead of turning his heart back. It's so tragic. I, I hate to see pastors fall. I hate to see great men of God fall. It, it brings tears to my eyes. And we see this through, even now. And we saw this with Saul. And it would always trouble me in scripture. I would, I would read that scripture that said, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord came to torment Saul. And David would come and, and free him. And this is just my opinion. I believe that at this moment, Saul was resisting, 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 until he got to a point where the only language he was talking about, the only language that could get to him was fear. That was his only context. And God was saying, I love you so much that if fear is the only language you're speaking, I will speak fear in order to possibly turn your heart to me. I want the fear of the Lord in you, Saul. This is our beautiful Savior. He is good in nature. He is good. He is beautiful. He wants our hearts. He is a jealous Father who longs for our our affection. Number three. This is what he tells them, their pathway back to repentance. Remember, remember your history with God. Say it out loud in your prayer time. I didn't know this until this week, but the most exhorted phrase in the Bible is remember. God says, remember your history. When Moses was uh, without water, the Israelites were complaining and griping He says, take your rod. What did the rod represent? Take the rod and strike the the rock. This wasn't just a prophetic act. He was saying, take your history, the thing that represents how I split the Red Sea for you. Take that. Your history is fuel for your current giant you are facing. Take what I freed you with in the Red Sea. This is how you face the giant right now. Remember. The first place I go to when I go before the Lord in prayer, it's not, it's not necessarily scripture. It's not necessarily worship. It's my history with God. I begin closing my eyes and playing my prophecies. Lord, I remember when you touched me when I was a child. I, I do this every day. I try my best to keep fresh my first encounters with him because I can't stay sane without that. (laughs) I need to know what he spoke about me or else I will sabotage myself in life without knowing his voice. Timothy says, and Timothy, use your prophecies as a weapon to wage warfare. I need his voice to wage warfare. It it keeps my heart alive. Say out loud your your encounters, your your most incredible encounters. If you're facing depression or or hopelessness, I promise you, if you sit down and write the top 10 testimonies and prophecies God has ever done in your life and say those aloud, you will get free in that moment. It It will at least clear your head. Keeping that fresh, the first encounters. Catherine Coleman used to do that. She would constantly talk about her first moments as a young girl to keep that fire fresh and that flame burning. When you can't feel him, When you can't see him, when you can't hear him, you can always remember. 
power of memory of what he's done. Jesus, we love you. The last two things, he says, number four, strengthen what remains. Weak love is still real love. I shared that. Number five, hold fast. That means stay with it. I'm hitting a wall with God. Keep hitting that wall. It will eventually fall down. And then lastly, he gives a reward. He basically says, fervent, passionate love is not microwavable. It takes devotion. It takes time. Stick with it. Devote yourself to a a new level of, of prayer and worship and stay with it. Keep hitting that wall. Lastly, the Church of Philadelphia. I'll just read the first, the first uh, verse of that. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. To the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and closes and no one opens. We can go and put that, that slide up. This is one of the two out of the seven who he gives no rebuke to. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. Referencing Jesus is closer than a brother. He's not sidekick. He is close. He is near. The description of him is the holy true one who holds David's key. The key of David is David is known for living a life of intimacy through radical devotion to prayer and worship that unlocked the authority to release all the resources of God throughout the land of Israel. Jesus is referencing here a scripture in Isaiah 22, 22. Remember the number 22, 22 eternal rewards and 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. He's referencing Isaiah 22, 22 which was a key or authority. He says this, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is saying that key of David that was known for prayer and worship, that key of David, I am that key of David now. In the Old Testament, that key of David was only David's, but now this new era of the New Testament, the key is me. I have the authority to open every door of resources. If you use all your resources and devote your life to prayer, worship, and loving him, he's saying, I will open up and devote all resources to pour out on you. It's the key. He and he alone is the key saying, that's me now. I am that key. We don't worship Jesus to get anything. But when we worship him, we get everything. (laughs) He is all in all. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether beautiful. He's saying, I am that house of David now. It was prophesied that Jesus would sit on the throne of David. What is the throne of David? David was a man who committed to building a house primarily to house the Lord. is not primarily, I said primarily, to house people. It's primarily to house his presence. We come second. (laughs) The first and greatest command. Jesus said the first is to love me. The second is to love people. 
So many, 90% of global churches, and we love them. We are all one bride and one body, but 90% of American church, we say the second loving people, we put it as primary in the first. And then everything we do is operated with, how do we please people? How do we please people? How do we get people in seats? How do we keep them? Instead of asking the question, how do we get him and keep him? If we devote all of our resources to thinking, Instead of banging our heads against the walls, how do we get people? How do we get him and how do we keep him? If that is our objective, churches would be filled. So if the first priority is people, everything we do will be operating from that value system. How's the temperature in the room? How's this? How's that? All great things, however, they shouldn't be first. But when he is priority, his value system is priority, we say, what does he want? What is the Lord like? Oh, you, you like hours of prayer and worship? Let's do that. You like a, a heart that burns for you? Let's, let's do everything we have to give him that. You want oil and gold refined by fire? Let's forsake every attempt of, of getting people here and let's get you here using that. <laughs> From the beginning of this message, Jesus is raising the standard for what he values most for his end time last day bride, houses of prayer and worship that host him above all else. He values a heart that trembles at his voice more than the works of our own hand. That's what happened with the church of Sardis. They were so enamored by the work of their hand. Look how beautiful our, 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 our systems are. Look at all these things we've done with our own hands. And yet they were so blind to what Jesus truly, truly wants. Saying, hey, you can't take this with you when you stand before me in eternity. You'll be able to take with you. You'll be able to take worship with you. The theme of all seven churches, it comes down to one thing. Stop building your own kingdoms and build my house, which is a house of prayer and worship and intercession. And I truly feel like the Lord is raising up this in this hour. He is raising up houses of worship and prayer to house him primarily. He is marrying worship and prayer together and making it one thing. If any of you were at our Wednesday night worship and prayer, oh my Lord, we bought gold that we are going to take to the throne room that night. We bought eternal oil that we're going to take to the throne room right that, when we stand before him. We purchased gold that night. We, we wanted him and that's, that's what we got. Many people have no interest in heaven because they have so little invested there. It's time to invest in heaven. How do we want to stand before him? How do we want to approach the throne? Jesus, we love you. He entrusts to us the measure of himself that we will jealously guard. How many of you know there is a difference between a church that prays and a praying church? A church that prays, it's like prayer is maybe a side activity. It's we do occasionally, prayer is really a side issue, but our main thing is we're, we're going in opposite direction. There's a difference between a church that prays and a praying church. A praying church is prayer is not merely a side issue. It is my bridal identity. It is who I am as not only an individual, but as a church, as a body. And I just want to honor our pastors in this church who have invigorated in our DNA this prayer culture. I just want to honor that. That, that prayer is not, 
It's not like, it's, it's not just a thing. It is who we are. It is our bridal identity that we are prayer. It's not a side issue. And I just want us to get, get a charge this morning. We realize what, it, what Jesus values. I want to take inventory every day of my soul. Lord, I invite your loving gaze into my heart. You are not... You are not an evil father. You love us so deeply. You love us so deeply that you, you would correct us. And there's grace in the correction when we choose to say yes. Revelation 19.7, last scripture. It says, let us rejoice and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Notice it doesn't say the Lord made her ready. <laughs> It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit made her ready. It says the bride made herself ready. We have a responsibility. The Lord is just tossing out keys of responsibility as the bride saying, hey, what if my coming is contingent on your preparation? What if we're just waiting? Okay, whenever you want to come, we're here. And he's saying, I want to come when you're ready. I want you to make yourself ready. I said this last week that I believe Jesus will return the moment the longing for him on earth matches the longing for him to come in heaven. Jesus will return the moment the longing for him on earth matches the longing for us in heaven. What is this? Our deep is matching his deep. There's a match. And his coming is birthed through this match. Let's put up that last slide. I want to I wanna say, say one thing. I want to talk about this reward. What is the reward for overcoming? To be made a pillar in the sanctuary and name written on you in the New Jerusalem. What are pillars used for? They're used to carry weight. They're used to carry a foundation, to carry weight. I believe he is calling us to be faithful in this season to prepare us to carry the weight of glory in eternity. Allow the weightiness of what he's calling you to on earth determine the weightiness of how you seek him. If, if, if the calling on your life, if it does not require a deeper encounter, a weightier encounter, then you need to ask him for a deeper revelation of the calling on your life. It demands a weighty encounter with him. How we carry his presence on earth determines the weight of glory he entrusts us with in heaven. So, Lord, we ask, let us be faithful carriers of you here. Let us be faithful to carry your weight of presence here so that you'll reward us as a pillar in heaven. Lord, we pray right now that you would raise up holy pillars in your church and in, in, in your bride, Lord, to carry your presence, to carry your glory. And can we take a moment and just stand to our feet? I just feel the air is pregnant with encounter. Lord, we exalt you, the conquering king. Lord, we pray for a weightiness of glory this morning. 
We don't want to wait till we get to heaven to be a pillar for your glory. We want to be pillars right now as we stand here in the courtyard Marriott. Let's begin taking a moment and opening up our mouths. And if you, if you feel hungry or if you feel lethargic in your heart, I see the Lord saying there is fresh fire today to awaken to awaken the sleepy heart, to awaken the sleepy soul. So, Lord, we, we open up our mouths and we, we say, come. We prepare ourselves. We make ourselves ready for you, Lord. We say, come quickly, Jesus. And, Father, we just accept your charge, Lord, for when we leave this room today, to cling tightly to our prayer closets. Lord, that we would walk away like Jacob with a limp, Lord, that you would make us walk away different, that we're not coming to you just for mere change, but we're coming to you to be transformed. So, Lord, we pray that you would mark hearts right now in the name of Jesus. I pray for the fire of God to fall in this room in Jesus' name. Come on, if you want him, lift your voice, lift your hands. Fresh fire, fall on your people this morning. Oh, let an axe experience happen. If you've never experienced the fire of God, just open up your mouths. Begin asking him for it. He is a good father who gives good gifts. Maybe it's been a long time since you've met him. Maybe you are that, that church who has really been writing off your past encounters. Lord, I pray for fresh fire to awaken this morning. Lord, fall on the hungry hearts right now. In Jesus' name, we cry out for you. Lord, we pray that you would just give us a shot of fire in our hearts so that we have something to bring to you when we go into our private rooms after we leave today. Lord, we bless you. We exalt you, beautiful king, wonderful king. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.